what I've been thinking about this year is a theology of presence, right? This is making me think about a theology of presence, how important it is. We are embodied beings. We are meant to be together. And you think about Scripture. God could have easily said, oh, you know, my children of Israel, you can worship me. Stay in Goshen. It's okay. You don't need to come out and worship me. But what does God do in the book of Exodus? What's that whole book about? He's saying, I want my people to come from Goshen. Come out to me to worship me, right? You think about all throughout the Old Testament, there are numerous or three primary annual pilgrimages that all the people of God have to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to be with God. Now, keep in mind, God is omnipresent. God is everywhere simultaneously. He doesn't need everyone to gather so he can take a head count. Why does God do that? He does it for you and I. Right? God could have easily said, oh, children of Israel, stay in Goshen. All my people scattered throughout all of Israel. Stay where you want. But God constantly says, no, 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 no. I want my people to gather all through the Old Testament. We see that all in the New Testament as well. And as I think about it, God's not doing this for himself. He is omnipresent. God understands, because he's our creator, the human need of presence, of being together. And I think this year, have you felt and I hope you have, right? Because if you're not feeling this, man, we got to talk. Have you felt that I am not what I should be because I'm just not with people as much? Now, you introverts are like, no, I'm doing great this year. But no, no, seriously, I hope you felt a little less you fulfilled full this year because you have lacked, or a lot of us have lacked, the normal rhythms and routines of, what's, of presence, and we see that all through the Bible. What is the theme that goes all the way from Genesis to Exodus to Revelation? God saying, I will be their God. They will be my people. He wants us together. He doesn't do it for himself. He does it for us. And so this morning I thought, okay, are, are we, should we cancel? And I thought, no, we don't need to cancel because we have people who, who get that. And guys, I am so glad that you get that, that we're gathering, even when it's inconvenient, cold, a little slippery and all of that. No one's grumbling. You're joyful to hear the word of God. This is what it means in large part. Friends, what does church mean? Does anybody know the, uh, oh, I know we have a Greek class. Okay, some of you Greek students, what's the Greek word for church? Ecclesia. And what does that word mean? Competing third scholars. She says church. Yeah, okay, no. It means what? Gathering. Ecclesia. Ecclesia. Church means the assembly. So let me ask you a question. Can you do church by yourself? No, because by definition, church means assembly, right? And now again, people are at home live streaming. Don't, you know, there are many of you in this situation, you, you got to do what you got to do. So I want to be very sensitive to that. Don't misread what I'm saying. But at the same time, there are maybe some people live streaming too that need to hear you can't do church by yourself, friends. By definition, it means to assemble. And how beautiful it is to assemble. All right, let me get into the sermon. That's not the sermon. Let's actually get into the sermon. Today is, anyone know what today, uh, um, well, it's not the actual day. It's actually October 31st. But does anyone know what the last Sunday in October is in, in kind of Christendom history? Anybody know? Reformation Sunday. Yes, Reformation Sunday. And, and, and typically, um, well, th three years ago, we started a series called So Great a Salvation, on the 500th anniversary of Reformation Sunday, which began, well, Reformation began in uh, 1517. 
And so on the 500th year anniversary, we decided to do a seven-part series called So Great a Salvation, where we talk about um, the, the elements of what the Reformation was or, or, or it is. And so the, the first year we talked about it, and if you don't know what the Reformation is, let me, I'm sorry, let me back up. It, it is not an exaggeration to say the Reformation is probably one of the most significant events of, of Western civilization or of, of Christendom in general, but also of Western civilization in specific. What the Reformation was, what the Protestant Reformation was in 1517, in essence, was the rediscovery of the gospel message from, from the, the kind of, at that time, the decadent and corrupt medieval Catholic church that had basically obfuscated, lost, gave up on the gospel. Now, I'm not saying that that is true of every Catholic, every priest, every bishop. That's not what I'm saying. But as an institution, they had lost their way. And the Reformation, which came from by Catholic priests and monks, said we need to rediscover what the gospel is because we are completely off course from what that is. And it's not an exaggeration to say that you would not have modern America or modern Europe if not for the Protestant Reformation. That is not an exaggeration. What we know of as modern America and Europe has been formed uh, in large part by the events of the Protestant Reformation. Our understanding, by the way, of human value and human rights and, and, and the, the, the resulting humanistic movement that has really influenced Western civilization in the last three centuries would not exist had not been the rediscovery of the gospel message and the understanding of God and the value of human personhood and his creation. So the whole idea of human rights and humanism that has influenced Western civilization is a direct result of the Protestant Reformation. And so in 2017, I thought, let's, let's, let's actually start, start re remembering this. And so we started our series, So Great a Salvation, in which I talked about the historical, the cultural, and the theological significance of the Protestant Reformation. Then in 2018, I laid out the constituent parts of, of what we would say the elements of salvation. When we say, and, and, and mind you, if you're not a Christian and I say words you don't understand today, it might be a little bit heavy that way. When we say, I'm saved... What do we mean by that? And I laid out basically the nine aspects of the gospel uh, or the mechanics of the gospel that the Reformation captured. Election, calling, regeneration, conversion, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. A lot of words there. This morning, we're going to actually jump into and talk about the first two of those nine elements, election and calling. So in other words, in 2017, we started a seven-part series on the mechanics of the gospel that we will get done probably on Reformation Sunday, October 2024, right? So, and the reason I'm doing it this way as opposed to just doing a, a seven-week series on this is because I thought as a church it's good for us to remember our theological heritage, where we've come from so we know what we need to do now and understand where we are to go, and what better Sunday to do that, even though if it, it kind of interrupts the flow of a series, than on Reformation Sunday to remember what is, and some of you may not remember this, that's okay, what we call the ordo salutis, right? It's a Latin word that means order of salvation. Everything sounds better in Latin. And so that's what we are going to do. The second reason I think that's, that we can do this is um, we, we, the boom in technology, our, our church staff put together this wonderful website. And so under the sermon page, you can select any speaker that's ever spoken here for the last five and a half years. If you want to choose whatever they pre preached on, it'll give you that sermon. Um, 
any date, any Sunday in the last five and a half years, what do we preach on? That'll be d- delivered to you. Any series we've ever done, you can just kind of select the series and all those sermons get collected and they're free of charge. You can download them, listen to it on your iPhone or watch the video. Now, I don't know if you've been around, but when I was in my 20s as a Christian, if you wanted to go to do that at a church, if your church was lucky enough to have like a tape ministry resource, you know, you'd have to go to the back table and write down on a slip of paper what sermon series you wanted. And then typically you'd have to buy it because they'd have to make cassettes and you'd have to wait a couple weeks. Well, we don't do that at all now. Everything's instantaneous on the website. And I think that's a great tool. So when we're done with this series, at any time, if you want to say, what are the mechanics of, this, of salvation, boom, so great a salvation. We have all seven messages. By the way, let me say this out to you because a couple people asked. If you go on there now, we have a, um, a seven-week series on the attributes of God, right? Behold your God. We have a 10-week series we just did on the work of Christ, one act of righteousness. This year, we're going to do a five-week series on the Holy Spirit. So we'll have 22 weeks of teaching just on the, God, on the Godhead, so to speak, right? And, and all the books we've gone through. So you have a theological resource at your disposal. Uh, for example, if you want to know what is the gospel ideal, what do we believe, we have a series called The Gospel, bigger than you've ever imagined, nine weeks on that. My point is, we have a resource that we're trying to create sermon series that are going to be helpful to you wherever you are in your Christian walk, or even if you're not a Christian, you want to know what Christians believe, it's all there. So that's why I can afford to spread this series out for seven years. All right, let's jump into it. Uh, Let me just say this, if it hasn't been already clear, what I'm going to talk about today, we're talking about these, these processes, the mechanics of the gospel, is what I call an intramural sport, right? And what I mean by that is, uh, this is kind of an in-house discussion amongst Christians. Not all Christians everywhere are going to agree with the way I lay these things out. Uh, By and large, our church is on page, our leadership's on page with this. But I just want to say that not all Christians are going to agree with this. Um, And because it's an intramural kind of topic, uh, I don't necessarily would suggest you share this with non-Christians as a way to begin the conversation about what Christianity believes, just because of the complexity and the depth of some of what we're going to talk about. Does that make sense? Um, so, so I just want to say that kind of as a caveat as before we jump into this series. Um, the, the thing I'm getting at is that while Christians can disagree on this, I want to make it clear, we do agree on the gospel, right? We have to agree on what the gospel is, but what this series is, is more the mechanics of the gospel, and you don't necessarily need to agree on those things. In the same way, you may not understand the mechanics of your car's engine, doesn't prohibit you from being able to drive the car, you don't necessarily need to know the mechanics of your salvation, of the gospel, to be able to apply the gospel. Does that make sense? By the same token, though, if you're a gearhead, you know that if you understand the mechanics of your engine, not only can you diagnose if something's wrong with the engine and possibly fix it, not only does that lead to a greater appreciation of the beauty and precision of, and the, 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 the miracle of the car, in the same way, if you understand the mechanics of the gospel, you can diagnose when something's not quite right and perhaps help fix it and increases your appreciation of the gospel. So that, that's kind of what I want to say about that. So let's dive in this morning, picking up this series, So Great a Salvation. We've already done two weeks on the introduction. You can find that on the internet. Let's talk about the first two. And, and without doubt, what a way to jump into it. The first one is, is possibly one of the more controversial of the, of the nine that we could look at, and that is the doctrine of election. I'm going to spend more, more time on that, but then we're also going to look at the doctrine of our calling in Christ. 
So if you're a note taker, we're now talking about the doctrine of election. One thing we need to make very clear is not to confuse our election with Christ with the upcoming presidential election next month, okay? Both of them are controversial, I get it, but only one of them is contentious, right? And that's the political one. The reason our election in Christ is not going to be contentious at all is because Christ has sole authority to make that judgment call, unlike our political elections. Now, we know what a political election is, so you understand what I mean by that, but what do I mean when, I, when I'm speaking of uh, our election, a spiritual election, a spiritual election in Christ? What do I mean? And for that, I'm just going to give you a definition from this fantastic book that I think every Christian family should have at least one of these. This is a systematic theology. Let me read to you a definition of election from Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. This is what Dr. Grudem writes. Election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Oh, so election is something that God has done before creation, not on account of anything you've ever done, but simply because of God's sovereign good pleasure to be a blessing to you and I. So if you are a Christian, what this means is God chose you from before Genesis 1 to be his son or daughter because of Christ and through the work of Christ. So the question you need to be asking right? Some, for some of you, you understand this. For some of you, you're on board. For some of you, you may never have heard this. For some of you, you can't believe I'm actually saying this. The question that needs to be asked, is this what Scripture teaches? That's always the right question. So let's now take a look at Scripture, and I'm going to go through a lot of the New Testament and just kind of show you that this doctrine, it comes out everywhere in many ways. So rather than try and quickly turn there, I'm going to give you the Scripture reference Read it and talk about it, right, so that you can study this at home. By the way, these are going to be on community group questions as well. Does Scripture teach this? Well, look at Acts chapter 13, verse 48. Luke is recording the spread of the church, and just in passing, Luke makes this comment. He says this, And when the Gentiles heard this, the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And then he goes on to write some other things. Just in passing, Luke says, yes, they heard this and they rejoiced. And as many of them that were appointed to eternal life, they in fact believed. In Romans chapter 9, verse 11, Paul, who is giving an intensely significant discourse on the doctrine of election, starting in Romans chapter 8, says this in Romans 9, 11, speaking of Jacob and Esau, though they were not even born and had done nothing, either good or bad, but in order that God's purpose of election might continue, he chose that the older should serve the younger. I mean, Paul says at point blank, the reason this is going to play out in their lives is because of God's purposes in election. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says this, even as God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Wow, right? A few verses later, in verse 11, Paul writes, In Christ we have obtained this inheritance, having been predestined according to the purposes of God, who works all things to the counsel of His will. So that word predestined is a larger term. It basically means the same thing as election. So for our purposes, I'm going to use those words synonymously. But Paul says, man, 
We have been predestined according to the counsel of all things that God works out. A couple more verses. 1 Thessalonians 1.4, Paul writes this, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you. Wow. 2 Thessalonians, this is a church that was dear to Paul's heart. In 2 Thessalonians 2.13, he says, We always give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Two more verses, 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul writes to, this, to Timothy, who saved us, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, then why? Because of God's own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And finally, here's a last one from the book of Revelation. It's, 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 it's kind of shocking. It actually kind of shows the flip side of this doctrine of election, right? So John and the angel, the angel's talking to John about what's going on, and, the, and John records, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it, the beast. So what he sees is this amazing beast coming out of the seas in a vision, and, and the mass of humanity worshiping the beast, and this is what's recorded. All who dwell on the earth will worship the beast. Who will worship the beast? Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb. So what John is recording is that this amazing beast will come out, and everyone whose name was not already written in the foundations of the world in the book of life, they're going to worship the beast. And so just really quickly, as we scan through the New Testament, all throughout the New Testament, there is a strong teaching that God is electing and choosing His people. We can't deny it. Now, we may not like it. I want to grant for that. We may not like it, but that's what the Bible does teach. There are people who disagree. I want to respect that. But I think the Bible's teaching is very clear on this doctrine. Now, why does the Bible put this in there? Now, let me be very clear. The Bible doesn't put this doctrine in there so we can get all twisted up in philosophical pretzels and wonder, well, wait a minute, if God is doing this, do I have any choice in the matter? This doesn't make sense. And it's not about intellectual rigor and figuring it out, although it can include that. But here's why the Bible puts it in there. Let me give you three reasons. Number one, the Bible talks about election as a comfort to us. I want to be very clear on this because it's very easy to lose. It's very easy to get prideful about this doctrine or get really offended by this doctrine and lose sight of the fact that God includes this as a comfort to you and I because here's the reality. If being forgiven, redeemed, and rescued by God was dependent upon my wisdom and figuring it out, my innate goodness or worth, I would be lost forever. And the reality is so would all of you. If it depended upon me understanding this, accepting it, or my behavior, I have no hope to be rescued. And that would be true of all of us. And so the Bible talks about my election in Christ as a comfort to me. Say, Rick, it is not about you. God did not do this because he thought you, were, uh, you could figure it out or you were smart enough and you were in fact able to do that. And the reason others aren't elected is because they're not as smart as you. That's not what it is. It's a comfort that God does what he does out of his good pleasure and love. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he's one of my favorite preachers um, in England in the 19th century, says this about election. I must believe in this doctrine of election. God must have chosen me before I was born because he surely would not have chosen me after I was born. <laughs> right? <laughs> Guys, that's so true. What, what a comfort 
to know that God took my salvation, that he took your salvation seriously enough, that he loved you profoundly enough, that he cared for you thoroughly enough that he would put you in Christ before you even realize you needed to be put into Christ. That is a great comfort that tells me if he's already thinking that far through these things, I can trust him for so much else. And God does this because of his love. Ephesians 1.5 says, in love, he predestined us. So it wasn't so that we'd have this brilliant philosophical puzzle we can think through. And trust me, thousands of theologians and philosophers have worked through this. Thousands more Christian lay people try to work it out. And they lose sight of the fact that it's here because of a co- God loves us and he wants to comfort us. But here's a second reason we have this doctrine of election. As a reason to praise God. Think about it, friends. When your employer gives you a paycheck, do you thank them profusely for that paycheck? Not not, not normally, not usually, no. Why? Because you're getting what you earned. You're getting what they owe you, right? As a matter of fact, you think they probably owe you more, and so maybe you're you're not thankful. You're like, where's more, right? You, You don't thank them because you recognize this is what you are due for your service. But let's say your employer was no longer your employer, but continued to give you a couple thousand dollars every couple of weeks for no other reason, because they're not your boss, other than their good pleasure to be a blessing to you. Then what do you, how do you feel about them? You're like, you're the best person around. You're amazing that you would supply all my need and I'm not even working for you just because you'd think that person was, was beautiful. The doctrine of election is here to teach us, to help us to praise God. Um, I do want you to go to Ephesians chapter 1. This is a very powerful passage that that reinforces this. Um, I was thinking about this earlier this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, and I just want to read a few verses to you from this this chapter, starting at verse 3 to verse 14. And, And what I want you to do now is I want you to read with ears about what we've been talking about, right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved." Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things in earth. Verse 11, in him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Why? So that, verse 12, we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of his glory. So now, All the things I just talked about, hopefully you have the ears to hear. Oh my goodness, that's all through that passage. And I thought about early this morning, in answer to the question, because we're talking about our election in Christ, 
you know, we use the term saved, right? You guys heard that term. That's a still term, right? It's not just the 60s, 70s hippies term we use. So when were you saved? As I was rereading Ephesians 1 this morning, well, there's a couple different answers to that question. According to verse 4, I was saved before the foundations of time when Christ destined me in Christ. Before anything began, I was saved. But according to verse 7, I was also saved when Christ finished his redemptive work on the cross. I was saved. But according to verse, I think, 11 and 12 or 12 and 13, I was saved when I heard the gospel and surrendered in my rebellion against God, and that became real in my life. But there's a fourth one as we think about it. We've talked about how often does the scriptures talk about being saved, right? So, so our concept of salvation just goes when we think about what the Bible talks about being saved. I was saved. You were saved if you're in Christ before time began. You were saved at that work of, the work of Christ on the cross. You were saved when you heard the gospel. You are constantly being saved. And that amazing verse there in verse 11, the inheritance. What does he say right here? In him we've obtained an inheritance. Do you think Mark Zuckerberg's kids have a big inheritance? To look forward to, right? You think Warren Buffett's kids have a big inheritance to look forward to? You think, well, how big is Jesus' inheritance? And Ephesians says, that's yours. In him, you're in Christ. That's your inheritance. You didn't earn it. You certainly don't deserve it. But it's yours because verse 5 says, God loves to bless and he pours out his blessing. And he's chosen you in Christ to receive that inheritance. So we're taught the doctrine of election for our comfort to know that there's nothing that I'm going to do or not do that will take away the love of God for me. He chose me, put me in Christ. It, we, we've given it to as a, as a reason to praise God. And then third and finally that I'm going to give you as an encouragement towards salvation. The doctrine of election should make you fearless in sharing the gospel. Years ago in my early 20s, I had a, an outreach ministry, me and some friends put together, and we would preach the gospel in, in high schools and universities and prisons and boys' homes. Uh, they would do a bunch of rapping, really good rappers, and then I would come out and preach. And we got invited to preach at USC. It was the second year we got invited to preach. It was amazing. They had like a worldview uh, week, and we, get to, we got to start it off one year, so they asked us to come back the second year. And right in the middle of my preaching, it was a very tumultuous thing. It was a, a bit tumultuous the first year, but the second year, it got even more tumultuous. They had people... Um, there was a, a, a student protest group that basically thought that this was us cramming religion on their throat. So they brought out signs, they were protesting, and they were just making a big ruckus about it. And it got really out of hand to the point where in the middle of my preaching, school officials came out and tried to shut it down. And, and, and I just kept preaching. And so finally, to shut it off, they just pulled the plug and basically had security escort us off the stage. And the funny thing was, like, you invited us here, right? We were here last year, and you asked us to come back. Well, long story short, as we were sitting there over by Tommy Trojan, and the guys were just discouraged because they feel like the gospel didn't go out, that the job wasn't done. And I said, guys, if we read the Bible, God's purposes are never thwarted. He has his elect. It might have even been some of the loudest protesters. And if they are elect, what we said today, God will use to draw them to salvation. We did the job. Election is given to us as an encouragement of, 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 to evangelism, that it's not dependent on how articulate you were. I mean, don't be a jerk. Don't be ignorant about your faith, but it doesn't depend on you having all the answers, you knowing the right thing to say, you having all the right convincing things. It's not even dependent so much on how they're going to respond. 
because we know God is hunting his own. He is looking for them. He is the hound of heaven and will not stop till those he's elected are saved. And that we can be confident of. Friends, without the doctrine of election, I'd have no encouragement to be able to be a bold witness for Christ because I have no guarantee anything is going to bear any fruit. But the Bible tells me the elect will come to know Christ. Now, that being said, let me address briefly, there are some objections to this, and, and I understand it. One of the objections goes that this doesn't seem that it's fair that, that, that God saves some but not all. This doesn't sound fair to me. And you know what? You're right. It isn't fair, right? It, it isn't fair. But stop and think, friends, what we're talking about in the gospel. We're talking about the infinite becomes an infant. The maker becomes a man. The divine is despised. The majestic one is mocked. It isn't fair that his glory and honor are diminished and decried and mocked and sinned against and rebelled against. It isn't fair. And it isn't fair that God is the one that pays the price of that rebellion, of that mocking and that blasphemy. That God is the one that gets crucified for our crimes. It is not fair at all. And yet, that God would still save just some, it's not fair. See, see our understanding of fair is completely lopsided, right? Here's the, the, the presupposition under the argument that this isn't fair, is that somehow you and I are actually innocent and, and good and, sh and worthy of the infinite, majestic, glorious one's divine love. But the, I'll be honest, guys, that's not what the Bible teaches. I want you to go to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. It's a couple pages to the left from Ephesians. Romans chapter 3. This is what Paul says, starting in verse 10. As it is written, Paul says, There is none righteous, no, not one, no one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. It's, it, you say, this is not fair that, that he would save some. Isn't he obligated to save all? The, the real question is, why would God save any? And then you say, well, but because he's God. But I just made the case, but, but that's an argument why he's not obligated to save anybody. He's the one that's been sinned against. He's the one that the crime has happened against. He's the only innocent one. He's the only righteous one. He's the only good one. So saying that because he's God, he should do this is an argument against him doing any of it. Well, you say, but, but, but he's loving, isn't he? And that's exactly why he saves some. See, it's not about fairness. It's about God's mercy and love because none of us deserved it no i know there's there's children here and you say surely this little one's not that right you gotta you know surely my child is not what romans 3 is talking about surely they're innocent okay you've never worked in a nursery before or children's <laughs> ministry but there's a difference between innocent and inexperienced learn the difference between the two right Friends, there's as much hellfire in that room as there are anywhere else. They just got to figure it out. And I'm trying to say that lightheartedly, but that's the reality. That's why the gospel is so important. Your kids need to be rescued like we need to be rescued. 
and praise God that he has loved some. So the thing is, it's not fair. Another argument is that we don't get to choose. Um, the reality is certainly you do. We're not talking about philosophical determinism. We're not talking about that's a, mechanicistic, uh, a mechanical world where you have no choice. We all get to choose. Friends, God's ordaining of reality does not impact your ability to choose because your choices are, in fact, included in God's ordaining of all things. That's what Ephesians 1.11 says. That's what it's trying to teach us. God has taken all that into account. The question is ultimately, what will you choose? And I know I'm kind of getting into the deep end here, but this is what I, I warned you about this. The, what will you choose? You say, well, this doesn't make sense, and I don't get to choose if God chose me. But here's the reality. I can admit that you may not be totally free if by free you mean free of any and all external and internal constraints or influences. But by that definition of free, none of us are free to make any choice. And you can read this in secular philosophical literature as well. And let me give you some absurd examples that maybe can drive the point home. If you ate bad fish last night, right, really bad fish, right, there's nothing worse than bad seafood, there's a good chance pretty soon you're going to have to go to the bathroom in a really bad way, right, right? Are you robbed of choice when you run to the bathroom? Is your will violated in such a way you feel that you are forced to have to use the bathroom? No, of course not. Your needing to use the bathroom to relieve yourself is entirely your desire. You're choosing to use the bathroom even though there is an external influence in the mix. Let me give you another example. Similarly speaking, do you feel you were robbed of making an actual choice in marrying your spouse because you, have a pre, you had and have a predisposition towards quieter personalities because you're a quieter personality? No. Are you going to refuse the bathroom because your freedom was violated by bad fish? Are you going to deny your affections for your spouse because psychologically you were predisposed to a certain personality type? When you say, when we say we need to be totally free for our choices to be totally okay and our own, the question is, what's your definition and what are you defining free as? You're not free to do a lot of things, but you don't say that your freedoms are restricted. You're not free to breathe water. You're not free to fly. Are you then going to say, Caesar, God's unfair? You are free to act in accordance with your nature, whatever that might be. You are free to do that. Let me ask you this. Were you forced to come to church today? Uh, don't raise your hands, okay? <laughs> there may be a few of you. But were you forced to come to church today, right? The rest of you made an actual real choice, although God ordained that you would be here. Does that knowledge, does the knowledge of the fact that God ordained you to be here today somehow invalidate your actual decision to show up? No. Now, you might say, well, that, that just doesn't make sense. This is why I reject Christianity because it's who we, it doesn't make sense, and so therefore, it doesn't add up, I reject it entirely. Okay, back in January, when we talked, started our study on 2 Timothy, we talked about the problems of modernity, post-modernity, and pre-modernity, or, you know, remember we talked about that, that thinking that unless it makes absolute sense, I believe it, and if it doesn't make absolute sense, I reject it, is basically the, the, the fallout of modernity, 
See, a pre-modern mindset, maybe they went too far where a lot of things didn't make sense. This is where we had a lot of the mythologies and a lot of world religions. Don't make any sense, but they're okay with that inconsistency. And modernity said, this is crazy. Rightly so. It was an adjustment. But then they went, they put the, the crutch on the other foot. Now it's, unless it makes absolute sense, we reject everything. Right? But the reality is, so this week I was reading uh, the science correspondence, Robert Matthews, he's been a science correspondent for a number of years, and he decided to write a book called Unraveling the Mind of God, where he collects all of the bizarre things about our world that we can't figure out. And one chapter I was reading this week, it's not because I completely understand it, but I do find it interesting, was on quantum theory. Now, if you know anything about it, yeah, some of you are phys- uh, anything about it, if you buy the idea that unless it makes total sense, we have to reject it, then you have to reject like the fundamental building blocks of existence. Like right now, we don't see it, but the reason we can see each other is light. And in quantum theory, they've realized something that doesn't make any sense. They call it wave-particle duality, that light is simultaneously a wavelength and packets or particles. That doesn't make any sense. That, that defies the law of physics, that something can be a waveform at the same time be something completely different. And yet, the more they study it, the more they realize this doesn't make sense, yet somehow all this is working. Let me read to you a couple quotes, and then we'll move on. Nobel Prize winner, quantum theorist Richard Feynman says this, talking about quantum theory, he says, you just never understand it. You'll never understand it. You just get used to it. (laughs) British scientist Dr. Haldane says this, the universe is not only stranger than we imagine, it is stranger than we possibly could imagine. So if everything has to make sense before you believe it, then you're just not going to be able to function in any power aspect of life. So the Bible teaches us we need to move on. Election, in Ephesians 1.4, you were chosen in eternity past before the foundations of the world. But, and now we have to switch to our second point, and I have five minutes left, this election is realized in time through what we call the gospel call. So let me take you to Romans chapter 8. This is the verse that kind of base, we're basing our series on, where some of this comes from. Paul says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined or elected to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the first born among many brothers. Verse 30, And those whom he elected, he also called. He also called. So what is the Bible's teaching on calling. Let me again read to you from Wayne Grudem. The definition he gives of calling is an act of God the Father speaking through the human proclamation of the gospel in which he summons people to himself in such a way that they respond with saving faith. Does scripture teach this? Okay, I've just got to say this. I'm not going to get this done in five minutes. Can you give me like five more minutes? We're going to go a little bit late, right? Does Scripture teach this? Does Scripture teach that God is calling people to Himself in order to enact, effect election? Yes, 1 Peter 2.9. Peter writes, but you're a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you from darkness into light. 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. 2 Thessalonians 2.4, to this He called you through the gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans 10.17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing 
from the word of Christ. I didn't put that, they didn't have the word calling there, but the idea is there. How is faith generated from the hearing of God's word? Now, the Bible teaches that some will hear the call and deny it and ignore it. It's the parable of Matthew 22 of the kingdom. Jesus says this, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Verse 3, and he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Right? But the Bible also recalls, or talks about people who beautifully respond to the call, like Lydia in Acts chapter 16. It says of her, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. That doesn't mean she believed in the gospel. What it's saying is that she was a God-fearer, okay? That's what they're talking about. But the next phrase is important. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said. So although the Bible teaches us clear that we are elected by God to be in Christ before the foundations of the world... This election is realized in time by our response to the gospel. And that's why what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, intellect, emotions, will, is so important. The gospel call comes to our intellect in that we explain clearly what the gospel is. The gospel call comes to our emotions in that it is a personal invitation to us from our Lord. Matthew 11, when Jesus beautifully says, come to me, All ye who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And the gospel call comes to our will, our volition. So we respond by living differently in repentance and faith. 2 Peter 1.10 puts both of these together. Actually, all three of them. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. And then he lists about like nine virtues to build into our lives. And then finally, the raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11, verse 43, is a beautiful picture of the very things we're talking about. Lazarus, dead, in the tomb. There's nothing he's going to do. He cannot respond unless God chooses to do what he's about to do. And even then, it doesn't work until Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. Until Jesus utters his command, Lazarus cannot respond. But when Jesus calls him, he gets up, takes off the grave clothes, and walks out. It's a beautiful picture of what we're talking about right now. Now, let's start concluding this. Friends, you never know who's going to respond to the call of the gospel, quite frankly, because we don't know who's elect or not. We don't. Charles Spurgeon said, if you could paint a yellow stripe on just the elect, I would just spend my time with them to convert, convert them. But we can't do that. So we bring the gospel to all because everyone has the, fame, the same fair chance to choose. It's all over the Bible. I'll never forget my last experience at, when I was at the, the University of Hawaii in the Monoa campus. I had a chance. I was doing a cohort for a summer with this class. So there's about... 30 of us going through this program together, and um, we're college-age young people, you know, so there's a lot of that kind of stuff going on, and, and, and it's a lot of fun. But there's a young lady who wanted to know the gospel, at least she told me that she wanted to know the gospel, and I've been sharing the gospel, doing Bible studies at this thing while I was there, and so I spent about two hours in her dorm room sharing the gospel with Sarah, answering her questions, dealing with her objections, and I thought, man, we, we got some good traction here, nothing, zero. And and as I look back now, at least now looking back, that maybe Sarah wasn't one of the elect. And I kind of felt like that that didn't do anything. What I didn't realize 
was that God's gospel call and maybe even God's election had nothing to do with Sarah, but her roommate Becky, who pretended to be asleep the whole time. And as I was talking with Sarah, dealing with her questions and her objections, Becky later told me she had repented, she got convicted of her sin and repented there. The questions that Becky asked and the objections that Becky, uh, Sarah had were her own. And she realized she was a sinner and needed a savior. I had no idea until the next day when she told me. We have no idea, friends, but we can have the confidence that God is pursuing his people these two elements, election and calling, ensure that God's will will happen and that we have a response to God's will that must show itself in our lives. And that's what we do as Christians and as a church. We proclaim the gospel because we know God uses means and He uses the means of the gospel that all people in a hopeless world can have hope, that rebels can become sons and daughters. And we can be issue, uh, confident to issue that call, friends, unashamedly, uh, unapologetically, because that's what God is choosing to do, right? Let me conclude with this. On the gate of heaven, I have no idea. Revelation 21 tells us there's a lot of gates, but let's just say on the gate of heaven, there's going to be two messages on it, I was told once. On the side facing earth will be the verse, come unto me all ye who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. On the side facing forever, it will say chosen from the foundations of time. That's the reality. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and, and thank you for the riches of your word. We, we've just scratched barely the surface of these two doctrines. We realize that there's so much more. Father, I pray that, that we are comforted knowing that your choice of us was not based on any of our merit. And Lord, if that hammers our pride, then so be it. We, we weren't any better than anyone else. It's just your grace and mercy given to us. Father, we pray that that reality would lead to profound humility and gratitude and thanksgiving. And that would lead to boldness to share the gospel, not worried about necessarily the results or the fruit that we may see or not see, but that you choose to use means, and one of those means is the proclamation of the gospel. So help us, Lord, proclaim it boldly as we draw your people to your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.